This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Sarah Kane Gutowski. Sarah Kane Gutowski is the author of Fabulous Beast, winner of the 14th Annual National Indies Excellence Award for Poetry and a 2019 Forward Indies finalist. With interdisciplinary artist Meredith Starr, she is co-creator of Every Second Feels Like Theft, a conversation in cyanotopes and poetry, and it's all too much, a limited edition audio project. Her poems have appeared in the Gettysburg Review, the Three Penny Review, Painted Bride Quarterly, and the Southern Review, and her criticism has been published by Colorado Review, Calix, and New York Journal of Books. Her new collection is a book-length narrative and poems titled The Familiar, which explores female midlife existential crisis through two characters, the ordinary self and the extraordinary self, who send a single household into chaos as they vacillate between the siren call of ambition, the necessity of the workplace, and responsibility to love and family. Welcome, Sarah, and hell yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me here, Lindsay. I'm so excited. I am such a fan of the podcast. Oh my God, I love hearing that. And what a book to talk about on this podcast. I feel like we can end the podcast after this because this is sort of getting <laughs> no, at no, what No, you can't <laughs> because it's like a solace for me. Like I, I look forward to the episodes and yeah, so please don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I would fine. feel so sad. <laughs> Um, I absolutely love this. I tore through it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I like kind of went into um, like student state where I was just like furiously taking notes and asking questions to the universe about it. And i um, so excited to talk to you. But first, you have to read to us. Thank you. Um, okay. So the as you said, the book uh, focuses on two main characters, the ordinary self and the extraordinary self. And it begins with the ordinary self waking up a little disoriented and she doesn't quite remember what happened, like a fairy tale. A great damage. My ordinary self wakes but can't remember when she fell asleep in this room. The sheets, slick with damp, feel unfamiliar. Grit rims her eyelids and even the mattress feels foreign like something loaned from memory's recesses. We haven't seen her for years. She hasn't been allowed to visit. Now she's here, suddenly, as if summoned by a spell and welcomed, coaxed and flattered by our pleas. Desperation's humidity 
rises from the bed. Daylight, dishwashers, doctor's offices. My ordinary self must become reacquainted with ordinary living. She wanders the rooms. Her feet sink, make light depressions in the carpet and brief dark splotches on the hardwood. She thinks about making an appointment for an oil change. She consults the kitchen's calendar, but its coded loops of pen and crossouts confuse, refuse to clarify. There's too much to undo here, she thinks. A great damage has been done. Panic beads her skin, as if on cue from our bedroom shadows, the clock shrieks an alarm. They sing her praises. In something of a paradox, my ordinary self is rather extraordinary. My ordinary self has follow through. Not all of the natural world or the unnatural has this persistence, the dogged will to see a thing done to its very damn end. That's why she's so good at laundry. She remembers how important it is to keep the clothes from pressing too far into one another, creating canyons of wrinkles. She avoids embarrassing piles of socks and thongs and linens from forming new terrain on the furniture. She hangs when delicates need drying, folds when the cycle is finished. She itemizes by type, material, color, and care. These days, no one ever goes without matching socks, unless by choice. My ordinary self is tireless, albeit weary of fitted sheets and their perfect, stubborn, imperfect corners. In the basement laundry, crickets keep her company. They sing her praises in the dark, though no one listens. Backseat scores. It's not like we drew up charges and nailed them to the door. One morning, my ordinary self appeared, much older, of course, than we'd seen her last, yet still her essential ordinary self, so dependable, so not extraordinary. But the house couldn't hold us all. Not enough hot water, only so much space on the family couch. My extraordinary self took it badly, jumped fully clothed into denial. She made claims about promises, sacrifice, and betrayal. Quite frankly, it was embarrassing. My ordinary self moved around her in a tidy silence, sweeping the broken dishes off the floor. Then my extraordinary self changed tactics. She took the children to a water park, a carnival, and the arcade. Next, she bought two sets of crotchless panties and took my husband on long, indulgent car rides. She cooked elaborate meals. And yet, my dog liked my ordinary self more. She never forgot to feed him. And the children ran to her with their cuts and sores. Even my husband preferred my ordinary self's predictable morning sex to roadside backseat scores. My extraordinary self had to admit defeat. My ordinary self would stay and she would leave. That last night, while the family watched the Avengers, she curled fetal on the carpet and wept noisily at our feet. with every disappointment. Occasionally and always on the sly, my extraordinary self visits the children. My eldest daughter, easily influenced, gives her a key, humors her crazy fantasies about taking a trip, flying to Italy, walking the bridges of Venice before they come become home to Coral, another city besieged by man and water. They are co-conspirators, the globe of my daughter's open, hopeful face, antipodal to my extraordinary self's lost faith. My daughter imagines she will somehow leave too, a tiny travel companion beside 
her adventurer mother until it becomes apparent that my extraordinary self never intends to take her. You always do this, my daughter sobs. You make promises and then you break them. For once, my extraordinary self is satisfied. This is a gift, she tells my daughter. Be less like me. With every disappointment, grow certain of what you won't become. So eventually the extraordinary self convinces the husband character to go on the trip to Italy and they abandon the family. And this takes place in the airport. My heart, not hers and not hers either. If not for Buffalo Wild Wings and their extra large beers, my husband might have divorced my extraordinary self right at the airport. A man traveling with the least wise version of his wife needs a drink or two or three because she will test all of his versions. Perhaps this is where we acknowledge this conceit is not unique, nay, not extraordinary. We all house within our skin and brains another self or two, whole persons devoted to one aspect of 21st century life with particular, not entirely healthy focus. Because I fought to maintain my own shit show of personalities, I'm not sure which version of my husband sat with that version of myself at the airport bar eating fried whatever. All I know is that on the plane, afterward, separated from him by rows and crammed between two baby boomers who didn't want to share their vacant center seat, my heart burned. Hard indigestion, sure, but with a moment of clarity. It was my heart, not hers, and not hers either. In the scratch chair back TV screen, I saw my reflection, its schism more raw and obvious than ever. Why had I brought us here? Outside, the black tarmac winked its lights as the jet roared. Seatbelt signs saying their warnings. Trailing tissue with her shoe, my extraordinary self returned crying from the bathroom. The stewards tried to soothe her with another drink, a different seat. Several rows behind, my husband settled with relief, grateful for this brief respite from all of me. And then we took off. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, and for <clears throat> everyone listening, they're all like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it follows this narrative, even as it's examining these, um, like these universal things, you know, this compartmentalization that we're all sort of going through. Um, there's a narrative that, that, you know, that we're following that, you know, that we're, we're following these characters. We're learning more about them. Um, but I, I don't know. I, <clears throat> I was so, first of all, I, I kind of wanted to bring up your, just your general energy. Um, because when you contacted me to be on the podcast, I don't know, like you're just, your energy was so like, I am a badass and I have <laughs> the chops and like, you need to read this. And I don't, I don't know <laughs> what it was. I don't, I, you know, I could go back and read your email to our listeners, but it was more like, I don't know. There was just, I want to talk to you about how you've cultivated that energy, which uh, like has given you this, this like um, ability to, to market your book so effectively um, when you sent me the book, you know, you printed your own, I think you printed your own copy, yeah. um, your own bound copy. Um, cause it's not, it's when, when is the, the exact release date? The release date was like two days ago, oh, really. I know. And it's because they, um, 
I mean, it got moved around a lot and, but Texas Review Press, they're an amazing press, but they are a small publisher yeah. and they don't print uh, ARCs. So I, I was like, you know, when I was pitching reviewers or podcasts or whatever, just trying to, cause they also don't have a marketing department, really. They have like three different, like full-time staff members who are really doing everything and then some interns. So uh, I've been trying to do as much as a bit much of that job I could as myself from (laughs) I was trying to do as much of it as I could myself and I mean it does take a certain belief in your book to put yourself out there like that and I think because I'm making fun of myself through the whole book like it was a lot (laughs) easier to do that (laughs) it's like you have to read this thing I'm just really mean (laughs) to myself. (laughs) Um, But it also just, I think because I've been having conversations with other women who are my peers, like the same age, anywhere between like 40 and 50, but maybe even at like going 35 to 55, you know, just in it, like somewhere from like Gen X to elder millennial. It's just, everybody's kind of having this moment where they're like, I, this is not what I was promised. (laughs) And also I need to be resourceful and I need to be like, and just suck it up because, okay, so I didn't get what I was promised. But, um, so part of that has helped with like the marketing part of it is that like, I kind of believe that reading about your own experience, because I've, I've taken that from other authors, like it, it's so valuable. So um, you know, is this book like the most important issue right now? No, but I know it's going to speak to like some very specific people yes. <laughs> out there. Um, and yeah. yeah, and you know, I, I think like that argument of like, well, it's, you know, it's not about like the migrant crisis. It's not about Gaza. So we shouldn't, I, I think like being able to feel seen like that by something like this allows you to feel stronger yeah. for those other things, but that's, that's a true. whole other conversation. But I just, yes. I was so taken by you, your ability to, um, because that's, I'm, I'm going to finish a sentence, your ability to market <laughs> yourself, because that is a skill that I think writers don't understand that it's okay for us to have. Um, and often we should have it. Um, and it's okay to talk about our work as if it's important and, and that, that it matters and that someone's going to like it. Um, and I felt like that came from your, what spoke to me from that was that came from your like experience of just being a writer for as you know however long you've been a writer and like facing yourself again and again and again which being a writer forces you to do as you're trying to get these things out there getting people to read them getting people to connect with them getting things onto the page I felt like it was all sort of wrapped up in the way that you came to me about this book and then when you mailed it to me there was like all this cute little swag that you did yourself completely and ridiculous. <laughs> no, I I just thought, "Oh my god." Like I almost felt um like I had some growing up to do because I was like this is exactly the kind of way that we should be talking about our work and we should be, you know, like not that that not that people should be, you know, everyone should be doing that or whatever, but that it, that it's okay to accept that you can talk about your book as a commodity, as something you want people to experience and that you understand how to market it. I just felt so impressed by that because that's something that I think I didn't understand I needed to be good at or that I needed to know about or that it was like, there's some part of me that's like, 
you can't talk about your book in a positive way. Like people are going to think you're an asshole, you know, and, but it's not true at all. Actually, it, no. it, it really helps, you know, like it, it made me feel like I was in good hands from the get go. Oh, well, thank you. I mean like that. And you should be talking about hot springs drive. Cause it's amazing. Thank you. It's so beautiful. The prose is really <laughs> gorgeous. You. And I love the structure, the it's episodic structure, I think is, you know, um, I think also, cause I've been listening to the podcast for quite a while. Like I, I know a little bit about how you wrote it. So yep. it feels, it felt to me like completely manageable and of that time too, yes. which felt so appropriate for the content of the book too, because these are mothers and they are, you know, stuck in the drudgery of the everyday. Um, and, and so, I mean, if they were going to be writing books, this is how they would do it in their car, 15 minutes at a time, getting out like the 500 words at a time or, or just whatever they could. So I feel like the book is really special for that. Um, and so, yeah, hell yeah, you should be singing its praises and I'll, I'll try. Would you say, <laughs> would you say Jackie is the extraordinary self turned toxic? Yes. And Teresa's <laughs> the ordinary self. hundred <laughs> percent. <laughs> and who's the inevitable self? I love that we we get the inevitable self at the end. It's such a delight. Um, uh -huh. Well, I mean, let's talk about the origin of this book because I I feel like you know you you mentioned that it's you making fun of yourself and you kind of being mean to yourself, but that is not easy to do. And you know I I've 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 read a couple times or heard somewhere that um uh that this phase of a woman's life is like a second adolescence or a second puberty, mm -hmm. right? Like, and you're sort of like getting, re-getting to know yourself as your body's changing in all these ways, which starts probably in your thirties and ends, you know, it can start in your thirties and end in your fifties. Does it end? <laughs> or it doesn't end, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, I feel like, especially as someone who's trying to make something and trying to communicate with art, like you are... And you're a parent, right? You are, there are, there become these selves. Yeah. And like, I find myself compartmentalizing. I don't want to show my kids my feral self because they don't have the ability to understand it yet. Yeah. Um, you know, it just might seem like, is mom like losing it? You know, like what's mom doing, you know, like, or, you know, like I almost don't want them to think about me at all. <laughs> you know, I don't know. What, right. What's, what got you to think about yourselves in this way? Um, well, so I guess it was around like 2018 because it was pre-pandemic and I was having, I suppose, like the beginning of my own little midlife crisis where I had reached a point in my career, um, things were happening where I teach at a community college and things were happening. Um, it was the direction of the college was not what I had signed up for when I first began teaching, which is going to happen. Um, but I, I mean, I had applied for sabbatical like four times or something and been denied. And it was part of a process where like, it used to be that like every seven years you could apply for sabbatical and you would be able to take a semester to work on a project. And it's like the, the thing that it's like the carrot that is kind of dangled after you go through the hoops of tenure and promotion. And it's like, okay, so now that you've gone through those things, um, we want you to continue doing a good job. So every seven years, you'll get to take a break and work on the things that matter to you because otherwise, like they don't really care about your publications and they don't really care about 
your art that you're making. And I mean, that's just a, I, I teach at a community college. We are about teaching, you know, um, and teaching the students, but that part of art making, like I, it took me a while to adopt the title because it is rather pretentious, but like, I see myself as a teaching artist and it's like the way that I'm on a good, effective teacher is to talk about the way I make my own art and then convey that to a younger student who then is going to say, oh, okay, I, this is the way I might do it too. You know, these are some of the tools I might have. And, and like, I think there's something of value in that. And, but like, I just, I wasn't getting time to write. Um, I was burned out on committee work and teaching itself. Um, you know, cause I mean, as much as I like my students, like you need a break from the teaching in order to continue to like your students. So I, I told all of the committees I was on that I was stepping off them. And I said, I, you know, this is, I haven't been given the time to write. So I'm going to take the time to write. And, um, and then I was like, okay, so what am I writing? <laughs> and I started, um, I mean, also at that time I was like looking around at my house and, you know, we had lived there for maybe like 10 years at that point. And so it was beginning to show like wear and tear. And we have three kids in this very small Cape and we had two dogs at the time. Now we have three and it was just complete chaos. And, <laughs> and I was like, what the hell have I done? So I've been like, so focused on my teaching career that like, it felt like the house was falling down around us. Like there was just clutter everywhere. I couldn't get out from under it. And I didn't necessarily have like the success that I wanted. Like I had been trying to get my first book published for years. Uh, it was like rejected, I think 144 times or something oh like through a contest model. So I also spent, this is such a privilege, like first world problem. I spent so much money on contest fees, just trying to get it like seen. Um, and so it was basically like, fuck you to the writing world, fuck you to the academic world. And I'm going to sit and like, I'm just going to actually enjoy writing for a while. And, and then I, but then I was like really focused on that. Like, okay, so all of my efforts to become this like teaching artist or professor who is, you know, worth something like they, they all ended up being like crap as far as I was concerned, you know, and I was, that's the extraordinary self. It's like, oh, good. Look at where all that ambition got you. It got you freaking nowhere. <laughs> right, so, right. Yeah. And so how did you start thinking of her as the extraordinary self? It's mostly like the extraordinary self that you want to be like the one who like you grew up thinking like, I'm going to do awesome things, <laughs> right? Like you have all these dreams, like I'm going to be this, or I'm going to be that. And sometimes like, you reshape those because you realize like you're not math and science oriented. So there's no way you're going to be an astronaut. There's <laughs> you know, like, you know, like my body doesn't do that. I'm not going to be a dancer. <laughs> like, yeah. There's just, there are certain things that you realize about yourself, but then there are those parts that you don't give up your ambition, your dreams. And you're like, you don't, you haven't hit them. And that's that's the extraordinary self for me like that part of me and she keeps popping up I mean right now we're I'm like doing a little mini as much as a poet can do a book tour I'm doing a book tour and it's uh you know like I was just at I was in Virginia I live in New York and I was in Virginia and I was there for like this art opening of an exhibit that I, some of my poems are in and I completely forgot to 
tell my husband, remind my daughter about a birthday party she had been oh. invited to. And that poor little thing, like she was getting a text from her friend later on that was like, are you still coming? And I was oh. like, and then she's texting me and I'm like, oh my God. Like I felt like such a shit that like, that's my extraordinary self. Like that's where she got us. Like she's so interested in the career and the, the publishing and the having a poem in an art exhibit that she's like forgotten about the kid's birthday party. I, I, I relate to that so much because, um, I'm just coming out of, um, the phase that you're probably in right now where you are constantly thinking about yourself and your art and how people are receiving it. And if you're doing enough and, and like looking around and like thinking like, well, why, why don't I have that? Or, you know, and so like, there was like an intense three month period where I was like, you know, obsessed with the numbers and obsessed with every, you know, like, and, and then because those things are never satisfactory, um, or like my, the way my brain works, I don't allow them to be satisfactory except mm-hmm. for in very brief moments. Um, it was affecting then how I'm looking at everything else in my life. And, you know, you're looking, I, we've been in my house for 11 years. The paint is peeling. We've had it painted. It's peeling again. You know, like mm-hmm. there's just like chips in the wall. Like there's handprints everywhere, you know, like, and you, and you start to pile that failure on as well. And so it's like, well, I'm, I wasn't as successful with my book as I thought I was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so huge failure what an idiot. What am I doing? Why can't I appreciate these beautiful children as much as I should? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, and, and I, it just like, it's a constant and I'm just coming out of it. Finally, I'm just coming out of that, like self-obsession, thankfully. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and that like mind warping, you know, and, and kind of able to sort of back, be back in the moment, but it really does feel like there's this other self. And I guess it's my extraordinary self who just like shoves everyone else out of the way and I can feel myself fighting that, you know, like constantly struggling against that. Um, I don't, I don't think that the extraordinary self has to be all toxic, right? Like I do think no. like those are the things like I did ask, I had a question. Let me go back to my, my, uh, my fugue state questions. <laughs> the question I had was, is the extraordinary self youth or not youth, but the sort of vigor and verve that youth takes for granted and is middle age a welcoming back of that stuff. The way children aren't aware of the fact that they will one day want to attract a lover so they can just play in the dirt and be loud and pick their nose openly is the extraordinary self, that sort of freedom, which can't exist within the context of responsibility or can it? I know. Well, I guess that's what I'm still trying. Yes. I think the answer is yes. By the time we get to the end of the book and the inevitable self, it's like the extraordinary self has to be there. And that's also, I mean, you know, they attempt to off the extraordinary self. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the extraordinary self is like, okay, yeah, this is, we should do this. (laughs) Yeah. Like nothing else is working. So I guess, and like there, she's a failure at that too. Um, And but like, I think that's the thing is that like, that also what was happening for me was that as I was writing the poems too, I was writing the poems, which is part of my ambition part of my calling that is separate from like the calling of having children or the calling of like wanting to have a partnership that is satisfying and, you know, a life with my husband and like the, so I was realizing you know, I was trying to focus more on the house and like, just be like, you know, forget it, forget publishing, forget all this stuff. And then my book was picked up by a publisher. My first book was picked up and I was like, of course, like I was over the moon, you know, um, excited 
And, and then, and at the same time, like when I was like focusing on myself, I was like, actually, I'm going to apply for uh, bread loaf Sicily, which I don't think they're running anymore, but it was amazing. And again, like we had, I took my husband and we had to leave the kids for like a week to go do that. Um, It was dope. i don't know if that came through but she said it was totally worth it i love them so much but yeah you know what what is that guilt about because i want there's like i guess the extraordinary self part of me or maybe even the inevitable self part of me wants me wants my kids to look back and and see that their mother was working and creating and that people were you know, like connecting, you know, like I want them to have that. I want them to see that. But anytime I'm invited to go do something somewhere else, you know, I have to travel and go somewhere. I, I feel this intense, like, you know, am I leaving them? Am I abandoning them? And you know, like, what is that? Why can't, why can't we just go do our jobs? You know? I know. And it's, it's partly, uh, historical, you know, and it's partly like, like the, the way that history has decided our roles as mothers, but it's also part, I think just biology too, because there is a certain, I mean, I'm also saying this is in a very general way, you know, but like my husband and I, we've noticed, you know, they're just points where like, they just want mom, you know, and like, you're not gonna, you know, I mean, there are parts too where they really want dad, but like for the most part, like, especially when they're very, very little, yeah they really want mom and so it just makes it really difficult to like turn off that you know switch and then shift to work which I think was easier for men I think like biologically like you a baby comes out of you it wants to hang out with you (laughs) (laughs) you know it doesn't necessarily want to go to the dad right away (laughs) yeah so like the the dads historically have had a much easier time like going away for hours at a time to support the family you know and then if a a woman wants to do that it's it takes some adjustment on everybody's part you know yeah and I think it's still you know like why is she able to you know like there's still like this huh you know like I don't know societal like hmm okay um well that's the thing like um uh one of I was listening to the Isabel Kaplan episode um, which it was a while ago, but like, I, I kind of listened to him out of order and I, she writes a completely different novel than, um, my book, you know, like, and, but it is, I think we're talking about a slightly different myth of female empowerment. Um, cause with the mother character in her book and the daughter character, you know, this thing happens to the daughter and the mother is like, well, you know, yes, you can like stand up for yourself. Like this involves like the me too movement, you know, like saying like, yes, you can defend yourself. And, but like, what's the cost going to be? And it's like this real, very real thing. And, um, and she's in the podcast, she was speaking, uh, about like, this is what success feels like. Why doesn't it feel better? Um, and that's what that character is also feeling in that moment. And like, I think we were told growing up that like we could, have everything that we wanted you know and as like that was something that second wave feminism did for us that was a bit of a disservice I mean well-meaning but like no we can't do it all we can't like there there's biology that's against us there's society that's still against us there's 
there are our own selves that are against us, like yes. our own psychology that's against us. Like it's not as simple as saying, here's the opportunity, right? right. Um, yeah. Because then there's also this, this part of it where if you don't take that opportunity, then you're ungrateful. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. or you squandered it, you know? And if you're not successful, you've squandered the opportunity that was given to you. And mm-hmm. I think that's like, it's like a thread or a a muscle like that's running through every one of us from, you know, Gen X to the millennials, you know? Um, Yeah. I think it's like, yeah, sure. You can have it all. Good luck with that. You know, like there's not, (laughs) you know, like there's not like, Oh, and also here's your village. Right. Like it's, you know, I, I, I've said this on the pod before, but one of my old bosses um, she was the owner of our company and, and I asked her to take some time off. I could go, right. You know, some unpaid time off from work. Like I think I asked her for six weeks, maybe four and she agreed. And she said, you know, I'm going to say yes to this. And it's because women can have it all, but not at the same time. Mm. And I was like, Oh, sh-. she had four kids. Um, oh, so she knew, <laughs> she knew. Yeah. And so I, I've thought about that every, almost, you know, every day since then, because she's um, in a way it makes it um, like more palatable, right? Like it's, it's like, okay, well, I'm in like the deep baby phase, right? Okay, now I'm out of that. So I can be more in like the the work phase. Um, well, you know, fuck writing. So now I'm back in the home phase, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. It's it makes sense that we've this group of people that you're talking about, the um, you know, the elder millennials to Gen X have fractured into these selves. And I that was another question I was gonna ask you. You did answer it um after I had the question and you did read that that poem um, in the opening was if it's a a, a specifically feminine type of compartmentalization um, Mm -hmm. to, you know, to fracture into the the ordinary and the extraordinary and then the inevitable. Um, And, you know, but you do touch on the fact that yes, men also do this, but I would like to hear if you feel like there's a difference in the way that they compartmentalize in the way that they fracture. I think so. I mean, it's been, interesting because I think that my husband and I have been experiencing kind of like midlife crises around the same time, which is not good for our kids and households. (laughs) How's it manifesting? Are you guys like, are you like on a Harley? My dad got a Harley. Oh, well, no, it like, it's well, I don't know. My husband has always been like really into like different projects. Like he, he gets kind of like fixated on he, for a while it was like, um, BMX bikes. And that is so actually like, I think that was the bulk of it right now. He's probably coming out of it, but like he was obsessed with recreating like BMX bikes from his childhood. Yes. And so he was buying parts. There are all these like, uh, you know, discussion forums on Facebook and things like that. And so he was part of them and he was like buying and selling parts and like making these bikes and letting kids in the neighborhood ride them. And like, it was it was, it was, it felt like this, this attempt to like, kind of get back the things that he, you know, uh, had to let go from Mm -hmm. his childhood. Um, now he's like, you know, there are only, apparently there are only so many bikes you can build. And I think it was somewhere around 30. (laughs) He was like, now I'm going to switch to, and he's like working on guitars and stuff. And he likes building guitars. He's like a gear guy. He likes the gear. Yeah. Okay. He's a, he's a gear guy. Um, and so that's kind of the way it has manifest for him. I mean, 
Yeah. So I felt like I needed to acknowledge in the book that like, while this is going on with like the narrator and her multiple selves, like there's stuff going on with the husband too. Um, But I couldn't necessarily like write that large because I'm not living that, you know, (laughs) it's, it's not my experience to write. Um, So, I mean, like too, this is very much like a class kind of oriented book too. like, you know, someone who is our age, right now, but had a very different class experience. Like I can't speak to that, you know, like I think it transcends like maybe race and ethnicity insofar as that, like, I know that when I was in like kindergarten in my classes, like, uh, you know, with a teacher surrounded by other kids and, and there were a lot of kids of color in my classes because we had, I grew up in the DC area. And so just like you ended up having like, you know, some, students who were like multiple ethnicities because they all like were coming from all over and so I know that like they were told like you can do anything just like I was told I could do anything but I mean maybe when they went home the story was very different because of like their cultural and ethical background or ethnic backgrounds and so maybe that was different but like um this is I feel very much like it's not like I want to apologize for it but it's just like this is definitely like middle-aged white lady book <laughs> like, <laughs> of like the you know and it, like a comfortable economic class I mean we live yeah. on Long Island which is one of the most expensive areas to live um in the country along you know with like LA Chicago you know DC mm-hmm. like they're they're expensive areas um so while my husband and I both have good jobs it's not like we're like rolling in dough yeah. um and and we're struggling, you know, like, I don't know if we can put all three kids through college. <laughs> we're going to see. <laughs> Maybe one um, of them wants to be like a hairstylist or a plumber or something, you know, I know. Like trade school. I know. <laughs> trade school would be amazing. Right. You know, like. Um, but yeah, so it, it's. It's a book for people who were like, I think, feel the weight of a responsibility to something that they were told. Yeah. in their in their youth yeah there was there should be a second part of that statement right like you can do anything you can be anything it's going to be hard you know yeah. <laughs> yes. and I feel like you know I, re- I can remember people adults in my life as a child being like yeah well life is hard get over it you know but it doesn't sink in you know like it doesn't sink in in the same way as like watching your your parent come home from work and just like sink into the floor you know <laughs> like, yeah um yeah, I you mentioned that it's weird or or um like your children watching you go through these midlife crises might be like strange for them. What do you think the experience is for them watching this? Uh weird and traumatic most likely. I mean, are they just creating new, you know, people for therapy? Oh. <laughs> future patients like there I mean, part of that is tr- like true. We laugh, but like the pandemic was not helpful. Right. To any of our mental states, especially in my household. Um, and so that. I think in some ways, like my. I mean, I guess I can't answer that totally, you know, yeah. I can see that like. My daughters, I have an. an almost 19 year old and I have an almost 11 year old they're both going to be 19 11 in March and then I have a 15 year old son and so like both of my daughters I think are seeing 
like, I think my eldest has seen me struggle sometimes with like being my own person and having a job and having kids. And she has said at times, she's like, no, I don't want children. And I wonder how much I'm responsible for that feeling because she has watched the struggle or witnessed it. And then, but then also sometimes like she gets baby crazy when she sees a baby in a restaurant. So (laughs) who knows? Um, But, you know, and then my youngest, like, she's really young and, and in some ways, like the 11 year olds um, were really that their age group was really resilient during the pandemic. And I, my son is 11. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I watched them like it felt like they did super well Mm -hmm. through the pandemic, but then, yeah. So I, I don't know yet. I know, you know, like I, I hope that whatever I'm doing doesn't dissuade them from doing the things that they want um, to pursue. Yeah. You know, but I guess like if they were to ask me, you know, I would say, well, yeah. So there are, here are the things you got to think about, Yeah, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Right. And then you got to wonder, are they going to listen? You know, like, are they going to hear it coming from me, their mother? Right. And they might not. They might not. And, you know, there's so many things I can think back on when my mom was leveling with me and I think back on them now and I'm like, oh my God, she was leveling with me, you know, like, oh, I'm so grateful for that. You know, like she was just like taking me by the shoulders and being like, listen, kid, you know, um, it's funny that your daughter says that she doesn't want kids. My five-year-old daughter has said that since she was three, like, I'm not having kids. No, never, never having kids. Never. And I thought the same thing. Oh my God, she's seen like the chaos of our lives mm. and she's seen me maybe not handle it as well as I could. Or she's, you know, like I, I try to be very even with, you know, with them, but maybe I'm failing and she's seeing that and it looks terrible to her and she's miserable and our house is sad. Yeah. But recently she's been like, I never having kids, but mom, can you have 20 more kids? Cause I want more kids in our house. And so I'm like, oh, <laughs> it has nothing to do with our family, she wants more chaos. If anything, she wants, no. you know, well, like, the, the last one is always the chaos monster. <laughs> oh, she is feral. She is absolutely yes. feral. She just whirls through the house. And they're um, so smart because they're yes. picking up everything from everybody else. You yes. know, it's like, I mean, not like, oh, my kid's so smart and wonderful, but like, this is like scary how much they pick up and absorb. Like, it's kind of terrifying. For her, I feel like she picks it up and she's so little that sometimes she doesn't understand when things are sarcasm or or things are not actually, you know, like maybe someone's tone of voice makes it sound like it's a big deal, but it's actually not a big deal at all. So I feel like she carries these little like anxieties around and sometimes she'll be like, you know, like, and ask me a question like very quietly behind her hand. And I realize, oh, you're so capable. You know, she's been walking up and down the stairs by herself since she was 18 months old. My boys were never like that. And she seems so capable, but she's you know, she still doesn't have the chops and the life experience to understand things. I don't know. You know, I feel like we try not to do the things our parents did to us and then we do other things instead. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, that is, that's exactly it. You know, you think like you're, I think you try to do the opposite of whatever, you know, didn't work out for your family growing up. And then sometimes you find out like you're doing the exact thing, like, and that's, disappointing and depressing but um but at least you acknowledge it you know like because I do think I mean we've been talking about um 
you know, like with, with mental health issues. And they say like, well, does like anxiety and depression run in your family? And I'm like, well, <laughs> like possibly, like, I think like I can see, you know, aspects of that in like maybe my parents, but like their generation never went to therapy. Like they never sought mental health, uh, experts and, and then their grandparents beyond, like, it's like, I remember my, or their parents beyond, like, I can remember my grandparents and think like, oh, like maybe I get this from that person. But like, you don't know, because like, (laughs) they were just getting through World War II. They didn't care. (laughs) You know, they they had a, like a gin and tonic and that, you know, that's what they did. They had another one and another one, you know, and I think about like, when I was a kid, the anxiety that I felt, it was kind of like, you got to, you know, get over it. Like, snap out of it, get it together. And that's just the tools that that generation had to deal with what looked like Mm -hmm. maybe behavioral problems or, you know, just like being annoying. (laughs) Yeah. I'm so happy to see that in my children's generation, um, not only in home at home, but like at school, when there's behavioral issues in the classroom, they look at it in a much different way. Mm -hmm. You know, like what, how can we support this kid who's learning the tools to deal with whatever anxiety, disappointment, whatever it is. Um, you know, so we are getting better in those ways. Um, and, and I, and I try to treat those things at home differently than they were treated in my home growing up Mm -hmm. shade to my parents. They were doing what they thought was best, but you know, like it's just different. It's just, it's, it's, it's wild how we've evolved. I know. And I mean, we might also like, I, since the pandemic, I've been thinking so much about like the resilience question. And like, there is a point too, where like, if we, if we honor and respect like every tiny little feeling, then it becomes too much. Right. right. Like, and then you can't, cause there is like, you can't function in the world if you're honoring and protecting like every little feeling that you have, yes. like the world will eat you up. Yes. So how do you broker like the right balance between saying, okay, your, your feelings are genuine and you should have them. Uh, but also you got to move on, you know, like yes. we can't cry over tying our shoes. <laughs> or we can, <laughs> but we still have to work. tie our shoes. Right. Okay. Like, <laughs> yes, like the cry, but get the shoes tied now and get in the car. <laughs> I, I heard, um, a psychologist talking about how mental illness isn't that you have emotions, right? Emotions mm-hmm. are healthy. So if you're having, uh, you know, uh, like you're angry about something that's not mental illness. You should be having appropriate emotions. Right. Mental illness is when you are not having appropriate emotions. So something that should scare you doesn't scare you. Something that, that, you know, uh, should make you feel sad, you know, makes you feel like panicky instead or something like that. Okay. Mental illness is not emotions. And I think a trend has been to sort of think about emotions as like, oh no, you know, like everyone should be in this steady state of contentedness at all times or else something's wrong. And that's actually not true. Right. right? And so like, yeah, helping your kids be, understand like you're going to be disappointed and bored and mad and feel shitty in your life. That's just life. And then the next thing will come along, you know. Right. Um, and speaking of the next thing coming along, I want to bring up the inevitable self, which was such <laughs> a delight um, to get to in this book. I want to hear about how she came about for you as you were writing. Did she, did she always exist? Did she pop up as you were getting there? Okay. Tell me. Yeah. She popped up because I, so the center part of the, or not center, but the kind of the middle of the book, um, where 
the extraordinary self and the ordinary self make a pact to off the extraordinary self and they keep trying all these different ways to murder her um and I wrote like more of those poems in any other section of the book and I was like where the hell is this going I don't I was like and also she wasn't dying and I was and like I was getting like a kick out of that like oh there she is again she's still here but then I was like well this has to get to a point like something has to happen and I was like oh like the older self comes in and she's like what's wrong with you two <laughs> like <laughs> smacks him around a little bit and like gets the house in back in order a little bit I love her and she reminds me of um that Mary Rufel is it is it called on menopause um, oh yeah or after menopause something like that where she's completely past all the anxieties that she had and as a younger woman and is able to just completely just love existing in the moment and you know doesn't give a shit about the male gaze doesn't give a shit about the female gaze you know and and like those things dropped away and the essence of what is joyful for her in life has sort of swelled for her and that's how I thought of the inevitable self was just like you know, yeah. yeah, you guys are going to like struggle with this and that makes sense. But eventually this is what it's going to be. You're going to be this older woman, you know, like and know. what's important is important and everything else isn't. Yeah. I mean, that was, I think too, um, I, I don't know. Can I ask you how, what did you think about the tone of the end of the book? What a good question. Well, I love anything that, that doesn't tie anything up for me. Okay. Um, Cause it certainly does not. <laughs> no. And so I, because I want to keep thinking about these things. I don't want their, I don't want like the end of the book. Isn't the end for me, okay. especially with something like this. That's yeah. the, my favorite kind of book. Um, so like, you know, I don't know. I was going to read you to you, but it's the final paragraph. Sometimes she sighs. We don't learn a goddamn thing. Most of us are flat chalk slates washed clean by time, dust, and then the darkness. In the end, no lesson remains. Come on. That is so good. Well, I felt like also it's so depressing. That's what I, that's why I was asking you. Cause I was like, oh God, what did I just do? <laughs> but I was also like, no, that's the end. That's the end. And yeah, I don't, I wasn't so much depressed by it as just like, it, it's, it's a reiteration of like what remains, right? Like what and 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 that answer might be different for everyone reading it you know like okay. uh, we can we can learn these things we certainly learned things in puberty we certainly learned them as we became young women and then sometimes those things have to be relearned sometimes mm-hmm. they don't make sense anymore and we have to learn a new thing and it's like yeah that makes so much sense to me you know okay. and i want i just want to keep thinking about it i just you know like that's I get the feeling. I totally understand the feeling of like, oh shit, I I'm a downer. <laughs> like I didn't didn't mean to be that, you know. Like I, Oops, I'm a delight. I'm actually a nice person. Okay, Goodreads reviewers. But I don't know. Darkness is meaningful to me. Um, mm-hmm. It's important, I think, especially as women, for us to talk about that, yeah. um, and especially in aging. Um, and there's a lot of light here too. Um, so no, I wasn't, I don't know. And I'm sure that's different for every reader, which is the delight of a book like this. Because hmm. they're going to find themselves in lots of different ways, you know. I hope so. But it's published by the University of Texas Press. 
or it's uh not university of texas it's um texas review press it's the university press of sam houston uh university okay so i totally changed their name it was texas (laughs) review press and then they changed the name to like trp the university press of shsu which is sam houston state university awesome which is a mouthful what was it like getting this to them getting them to take it what was that like well, they, so they they published my first book, um, which is a collection of poems that also deals with motherhood and is also weird. Uh, it it examines motherhood and voice and autonomy through the lens of like uh, fable, fairy tale, and myth. And um, it was runner up for their XJ Kennedy Prize, and they published the runner up. So that's how I ended up getting published. And um, so grateful to them for that. And then I was at, I think it was AWP 2020. So the book came out in 2019. And by that point I already had, I knew I had this book. I I wanted to sit with it a while and edit the poems and, and figure out like the narrative and what needed to be cut and what could stay. And, but I asked my editor, I was like, would you look at it? And he's like, yes. Cause they don't have a clause about like, you know, the, um, write a first refusal in their contract. And so, and I didn't know if like I needed to keep applying in the contest model, which is really a terrible model. I mean, I know that everybody kind of, all these small presses need to do it. Um, we have lost all of our wealthy benefactors yeah. <laughs> who supported us in the arts. So, um, but it, so they looked at it and and they actually looked at two manuscripts because I have this other manuscript um, that is an an art book with Meredith Starr. So it's cyanotypes, uh, these beautiful dark blue um, pieces of uh, photographic art um, and they're combined with poems and, and we created it during the pandemic. It was like a kind of call and response. Um, I'd send her a poem, she'd make a cyanotype or she'd send me an image and then I would make a poem. Um, And I don't know if like the poems weren't strong enough or if they were just like, this will cost way too much to publish, but they they said, no, thank you on that one. But then they accepted the second, (laughs) they accepted the familiars. And is Um, that, are those the images that are throughout? Are they- no, so those are, um, that was me playing with the, I think it's called Glitchy app. Um, it's like an app on the phone that anybody can use. And I play with it far too much. Um, so you can like <laughs> take photographs and you can manipulate them. And yeah. when they, they do ask about, um, I mean, they're a really wonderful press. They ask about like the, the kind of cover that you would like and the kind of art. And so I could submit images to them. And I was like, well, I was playing with stuff. I, I, I knew that I wanted like a face or a body that was split into parts, like either two or three. Um, And so I was like, how about something like this? And then, and I gave them like a bunch of images in a Google drive, but I also looked at like, you know, artists uh, I found on Instagram and I sent them those suggestions too. And then they came back with this cover and I was like, oh, (laughs) well, that's kind of fun. Like, so they're all my photos that I was messing around with and all the things that I sent them. Are they all selfies? Yes. Because they're hot. Okay. <laughs> they are sexy. I know they're ridiculous. People to get this book. But I, I was so excited when I saw it, when I got the, um, I love this one. The, oh, thank you. Yeah. That's like my Hunter S. Thompson. Book. Yes. <laughs> like yes. It's very, 
Um, um, I'm speaking of the image that's across from her terror is palpable for our readers who definitely have this book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listeners. It's um, it's like a tab full color on the inside. I was like really amazed. Yes. I was like, thank you. That said, that was a treat. Like I didn't expect that. That was their designer, like took the extra images that he wasn't using for the cover and it's like stuck them as the section dividers. And so I feel like a very lucky girl. <laughs> Hell yeah. And that's, I feel like that's the kind of care you can get and collaboration you can get at a small press where you don't always yeah. get that in a, in a larger house. Right. Um, There's so many voices in the larger house. Yes. And they have their, you know, the people they go to and, you know, we just kind of go, yeah. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you. I'm a good girl. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know. I absolutely loved it. Um, it's called The Familiar. It's on, I can't remember what exactly they changed their name to, but. Um, <laughs> Texas Review Press. Texas you Google Review that, Press. you're going to find it. Yeah. yeah. It's there. <laughs> um, it came out two days ago. You're on your tour, kind of. Yeah. Kind of like in and out. I kind of did a launch at AWP and that was so much fun. It was, it was really good. Yeah. That's like, that's always such a great, like warm crowd, you know, like just people nerding out about books and writers. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I mean, you know, it's got its issues. I understand. Like it costs a ton of money to get there and to do the thing. And that, that sucks. But if you can't get in there, like, it's just really, really it's yeah for five four to five days just to be like you know bathing in the warmth of like writers that you admire and and like just seeing all the work people put into their writing you know in the book fair and it's yeah I like it a lot that was our ad for AWP yeah (laughs) (laughs) I am not a paid representative or i but we're we're open to negotiations so just let us know (laughs) i'll be your mascot everybody go get the familiar go to sarah kane gutowski's website to see where she's going to be if she's going to come near you and um yeah thank you so much for coming on this was a delight as i knew it would be thank you so much for having me on here i can't tell you like this is you know they tell you um think about goals like things that you would like to aspire to and i was like i want to be on i'm a writer but hell yes i love that check goal check check yes yeah